Welcome back to another exciting episode of the PigX Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Delaney Howell. This month, we're going to be taking a step back to peer into a couple of conversations from the recent 2023 Iowa Swine Day with a few of the program speakers. Starting off this episode, I'll be catching up with Dr. Jordan Graham, a veterinarian for the Swine Vet Center, to discuss biosecurity. Then later on, I catch up with Dr. Dusty Odekoven, the chief veterinarian for the National Pork Board, to give us an overview of foreign animal disease and more specifically, some recent successes and failures we've seen related to African swine fever. We kick things off learning more about Jordan's background. So I'm a veterinarian swine vet center. Um, I'm a 2014 Iowa State grad. Obviously been practicing now for nine years, spent some time with a large integrated uh, production system right out of school and been with uh, swine vet center since uh, 2017. My time spent pretty much in the field every day. Uh, Northwest Iowa, Southwest Minnesota is where, uh, where I spend most of my time. So Jordan, chat with us about the topic you presented on at the Iowa Swine Day. What was it and how did you decide to discuss biosecurity? Yeah, so my, my, my topic kind of came as a, as a frustration of getting tired of talking about the same old thing when it comes to biosecurity. We really hammer on the actions, the showering in and out, the having clean trucks and transport biosecurity, and it seems like nothing really changes, right? So my challenge is for producers and veterinarians to take a step back and look at, are we setting our people up for success to get that done right? Do they have the tools they need to, to properly execute biosecurity? And also, the, our facility designs, how are they set up that we might be creating a problem in, in itself, especially around you know farms that don't have proper guilt development or ability to do herd closures and eliminate pathogens from those herds, uh, as well as you know having someone be an owner of the, of the biosecurity process and making sure that the people have the supplies they need, that they're not having to rob from other sites just to get, get the job done, because at the end of the day, they're going to get the job done. We just want to make sure that they have the, the tools that they need to get that done. Jordan, I think you frame that really well, looking at four big areas, the people, the pathogens, the facility, and the bioexclusion slash biocontainment. So let's start by looking at bioexclusion and biocontainment because they sound similar, but they're very separate topics in their own respects. Bioexclusion, obviously, it's the how do I keep pathogens from getting into my herd? Biocontainment would be, I've got a pathogen in my herd, how do I keep it from getting into the next herd? We really focus a lot on, on bioexclusion itself, of keeping things from going, from getting into herds. But a lot of, you know, in our part of the world, we have pigs placed there positive, you know, PERS positive, PED positive, pretty, pretty commonly. It's it's, uh, it's a bit of the dumping ground of the pig industry in northwest Iowa. It's a, if I have a health challenge, it's going to northwest Iowa because they're going to get sick anyways, right? So how do we keep that there? How do we keep that from, from moving from site to site? The other piece on that would be, you know, where we're doing continual exposure on gilts just to maintain stability in the wean pig flow. Do we think about the fact that we are moving more virus back into an area that's potentially creating you know, a large population of especially PERS viruses. And what, what we've learned from Iowa State and their work with whole genome sequencing is that when we have multiple viruses within a population or within an animal, we're possibly creating some recombination events that create new viruses rather than just the genetic drift or, or shift that we had previously thought was happening with these viruses. So putting a value on 
putting negative pigs into an area and keeping them negative and then also keeping disease within a herd and not moving it to the next. It goes beyond just the production value of decreased mortality and everything like that. It's We have to think about the area and our system as a whole. Yeah, not only the area, but also the timing as it relates to bioexclusion. Yeah, so that that was another piece of, of talking about the people, right? It's really easy for us to uh, sit behind a desk and say, hey, we're going to go vaccinate uh, this group of pigs, and we're going to get this crew to go do it. Well, sometimes we don't think about what was that crew doing you know, earlier in the day. Well, they were loading out market hogs at 2 in the morning because that's when we had loads going out. Now they're going to go vaccinate newly placed PERS-negative wean pigs at 8 in the morning. So understanding where our people are and what, what their constraints are is really important. And just assuming that, you know, someone's there, they have the proper downtime and it's going to get done. We have to, as management, we have to own that process and not just expect that it gets done properly because where shortcuts can happen, they will happen. And not only owning the process, but leading by example. If you're doing actions, if you're skipping a shower, the shower and shower out, your employees are going to see that and follow suit. Yeah, it's it's kind of a cliche anymore that we say biosecurity is a culture, but it, it truly is. Your, your staff will follow your lead. If they see you skipping over pieces of, of proper biosecurity execution, they're going to do the same. Okay, so now we've talked about the people. What about the facilities? What's the impact there? A lot of our facilities in our part of the world, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, the industry was really rapidly expanding. Those facilities weren't always built with good biosecurity execution in mind. Now, today, when we build a, a new finisher, a new sow farm, that's a huge part of the consideration. But a lot of these older facilities weren't built with those things in mind. So in farms where we haven't upgraded them to be able to execute that, we have to be mindful of how can we best execute our biosecurity practices and still make it reasonable for our people. And also putting a value on that for for capital improvement. I mean, many systems have said that we're going to make those those investments in biosecurity and make those changes. Others either said we don't value that as much or we don't have the the assets to do that this time. Making the improvement on those facilities is important. Those facilities are here to stay. They're well located from a feed and land base standpoint. We have to continue to improve those those sites if we're going to continue to operate them. And then as we look at the pathogens, we talk about containing pathogens, containing disease, but also um, excluding it from getting out everywhere else. Yeah, that's it's all a big part of biosecurity. What are, what are the actions that I'm doing, leaving a farm, going to the next farm, and keeping it there? A lot of shortcuts can happen, it, like we talked about. If we don't have the, the proper equipment at a farm and we have to go to another farm to, to get that equipment to get the job done, that's all part of biocontainment, keeping it where it's at, putting as much value of coming away from a farm clean and not bringing anything home with you is just as important as not bringing it into the farm with you. A lot of people, you know, at the end of a long day of chorn pigs or going from site to site won't spend the time to do that properly, but there's a huge advantage to it. And as if in my profession, the last thing I want to be accused of is bringing a disease to a farm, even though there's, there's plenty of people that say that that's the only reason we go to farms is to get them sick so we have something to treat, but not true. You have only so many dollars to spend. You have to do the most, uh, spend your dollars where it's going to make the most economic impact. So how do you prioritize the people or the facilities or the pathogen biocontainment? How do you prioritize that? I think start with the easy wins. There's there's often a, a bit of sticker shock when you look at what's the perf- what's perfect, right? And not letting perfect be the enemy of better. We can improve facilities by doing some small things. 
Some are going to take large capital investment to do it right. Doing the small things first and continually improving, it's not all going to get changed overnight, but if we can just continue to improve facilities and our production staff and, and the tools they have, you're never going to fix it all in one go. So I'd say the priority shouldn't be on a specific thing. It should be on what can I get done most reasonably with the assets that I have and start. That's the big thing is start the improvement and not say, now nah, it'll be next year. Some really great insight and reminders there from Jordan about biosecurity and how to make the most economic impact with the dollars available to your operation. After the break, we turn the conversation over to Dr. Dusty Odekoven to learn more about his background and research done in the foreign animal disease and African swine fever space. been with the pork board as a chief veterinarian for about a year and a half. And uh, just prior to that, I was the state veterinarian in South Dakota for 13 years. I was actually with the animal industry board, the state's animal health agency for almost 20 years. And so that's kind of my background is in livestock health on a, on a larger scale. Just had, had background there in managing uh, disease outbreaks and uh, foreign animal disease response preparedness monitoring livestock health on a, on a statewide scale and interacting with other state agencies within South Dakota, other state animal health agencies uh, across the U.S., and of course with our federal partners as well. So prior to that, I spent a, a brief time in practice. I'm a graduate of Iowa State University's uh, College of Veterinary Medicine, and um, my undergraduate degree is uh, from South Dakota State University. Awesome. That's a great background there. And I'm sure you brought a lot of that experience with you to the National Pork Board, but you covered the topic of foreign animal disease and preparedness for that, which we'll dig into here in a little bit. But when you think about foreign animal disease and preparedness overall, what are some high level tips that you think are important places to start? Yeah, well, to start, I think is <laughs> is probably the key. You know, I think the state of the the pork industry has been, you know, the, the economics of the industry have been depressed here. And, and you know, when you, when you are in, in times like these, it seems like preparedness and any activity for a disease threat we don't have seems like a luxury. And yet it's really important to be thoughtful about, you know, the, the potential impact of a foreign animal disease. And in my time in, in animal health, we've seen the introduction of several new diseases. As I started my veterinary career, we had the emergence of West Nile virus that had never been in the U.S. before, and it impacted uh, primarily horses, but, but people as well. And of course, we had the introduction of PED virus in the swine industry, and, and you know there are many other examples of, of new diseases that we're not new globally, but they were new to the United States. So, you know, we have a history that demonstrates that we do occasionally get disease introduction, even reemergence of domestic diseases. And so, you know, having some forethought to planning for continuity of business and the ability to continue to move livestock, you know, and swine in this case, in the event of an introduction of a foreign animal disease, it's really important to be to be thinking about. And so, yeah, just, just starting to, to have a plan. Basic awareness of, of the disease threats are uh, important. And in the swine industry, when we're talking about foreign animal diseases, you know, there are a number of diseases that we don't have in the United States that are not there that are not trade-limiting diseases. But you know, when we talk about foreign animal disease preparedness, we're, we're primarily talking about 
foot and mouth disease, African swine fever, and classical swine fever. Those would be three that would be trade limiting where we could lose our export markets just at the finding of, of just one case. And so uh, those are the three that we're primarily talking about. So when you look at African swine fever, that's again what you really focused on at the Iowa Swine Day. How does this disease, foreign animal disease, compare to some of the others out there that we've seen in the past? And is it more serious? And that's why we've seen more focus being put on it? Yeah, great question, Delaney. And uh, a recent study by Dr. Dermot Hayes at Iowa State University estimated the 10-year economic impact to the U.S., of, a, of an introduction of African swine fever virus would be $79.5 billion over 10 years. And when you think about that, I mean, that it's hard to quantify that or compare that to other disease impacts. But PERS, for example, which is, you know, by all accounts, probably the, the most costly disease that we have in the, in the swine industry right now, you know, the estimates there based on both some research and then some just practical data from, from the companies that are dealing with this day in and day out, thought that that cost the pork industry about a million dollars, or excuse me, $1 billion per year due to PERS. And with ASF, you know, we're looking at potentially $7.5 billion per year over 10 years would be the economic impact. So, you know, that's that's what's at stake. And then as we look at what's happened globally with African swine fever virus, it used to be, like the name implies, mostly restricted to the continent of Africa. And there have been outbreaks historically uh, to Europe and to the Dominican Republic and Haiti and Cuba in the past. But this recent outbreak is a new genotype. And it started spreading. It spread from Africa to the Republic of Georgia in 2007, and then into Eastern Europe in 2014, and continued to spread uh, throughout Eastern Europe. And then in 2018 is when it spread into China and really had a lot of damage there. It spread rapidly across all the provinces of China and throughout Asia. And, uh, and then in 2020, it got into Germany. And 2021, we saw it come into uh, the Western Hemisphere for the first time when it entered uh, Dominican Republic and Haiti. And so there have been now more cases of ASF reported in the last five years than there were than there were in the previous 50. And so and it's also estimated that 65 to 70 percent of the global sow population who it resides in countries that have identified African swine fever virus. So it, you know, not only uh, is it a serious disease, but this new genotype that we've been dealing with for um, 15 plus years uh, really seems to be continuing to spread throughout the globe. And so it's, it's worth watching. So when you look at the past couple of years here, really since African swine fever has exploded, what are some of the successes and failures that we've seen? Yeah, and that's really what you know. I got to explore with some other folks that uh, accompanied me on a, a trip to uh, Europe last fall. We went to Poland and Belgium and Germany, and also um, heard from the chief veterinary officer from Denmark. And we also spoke with a production veterinarian in Romania. And the goal of our trip really was to gather information and understand exactly that. You know, where were the successes? Where were the challenges? What was working as far as limiting the spread of African swine fever virus? And what what were the continued challenges? So, you know, and that and that 
really is what you know was the focus of the uh, the talk and the discussion at Iowa Swine Day is is what did we learn? And so, you know, without going through the whole presentation with you, but just kind of some top high level things, we learned that biosecurity is is really the most important thing as far as protecting the domestic swine herd and preventing ASF from spreading from the wild boar population and from people to the domestic herd. So biosecurity is extremely important and that takes a lot of shapes, but uh, we saw fencing being used in a variety of ways to protect uh, at the farm level, such as, such as in Romania, where ASF is endemic in the wild boar population and much of the domestic swine uh, population. Commercial herds were fenced, double fenced in some cases to, to uh, prevent introduction of the disease into those, into those commercial herds. And then we saw fencing at the um, country level where Denmark decided to fence the entire border uh, that it has with Germany in order to keep wild boar out and people out. The people have to come, uh, people in, in trucks have to come through specific uh, points of entry where the trucks have to be inspected when they arrive, they have to be determined to be visibly clean. And if not, they're turned away to, uh, to go back and, and be clean. And then uh, when, they, when they are deemed to be clean at that border inspection site, then they're cleaned again and then disinfected. And so what we heard from the, from the Danish chief veterinary officer is that biosecurity is the mentality of the people. And uh, so I've just given you a few uh, examples of, of the level of biosecurity that they, that they take there. But they wash every truck after every load. Um, which is something that we don't do in the United States. And, and we've commonly said, well, we don't have enough truck washes and we can't afford to do that. And what we heard from the European uh, production systems is they can't afford not to do that. So it was, it was uh, somewhat eye-opening to, uh, to see the level of biosecurity that's employed there. Uh, so, that, so that was part of it. The other thing that we learned was that uh, the wild boar is, is really uh, everywhere across Europe and maintains the kind of like the reservoir for the for the virus. And through biosecurity, they, they can do a pretty good job of preventing introduction into the domestic herds, but the, the virus does continue to spread naturally in the, um, in the wild boar population at a, at a range of maybe no more than 12 kilometers per year. So it doesn't move very fast, but when contaminated materials or high risk materials are transported by people, uh, for example, in uh, pork products that may not have been uh, treated properly, you know, may not have been cooked to a high enough temperature, may be contaminated with uh, ASF, and, and that can be uh, transported to another area within Europe, discarded to an area where wild boar have access to it. And that's, that is how the virus is spreading you know, across large distances, making large jumps. For example, we saw that in Germany, where a, uh, a strain that had been in Eastern Europe all of a sudden showed up in an area in Germany. And uh, the, the thought is, is that it was transported there by people and, and who were uh, you know, carelessly discarding some contaminated pork products in, in the area there. So, so it moves slowly through the, through the um, wild boar population, but can move much more quickly when carried by people. And so people and wild boar are the, are the major spreaders of the disease throughout Europe. And one additional thing that we that we observed when we visited Belgium, and uh, there they had a case that uh, in a wild boar, again it appeared to have been transported. The the infection was transported from a long distance away, and they found infected uh, wild boar carcasses in the south part of their country, and they used a fence to contain 
the population in um, over, I think, 240 square kilometers they fenced in as a, as a method of biocontainment. And then they, over the course of a year, they eliminated all of the uh, all of the domestic and wild boar within that area. And through continuous testing and searching out for the carcasses that were on the ground that could potentially serve as contamination for or the source of infection for other pigs, they, they removed all of those carcasses, they removed all the pigs. And one year after the initial finding, they found their last infected uh, carcass. And then a year after that, so two years total after the initial finding, Belgium was able to regain their ASF negative status by the European Commission. So one of just two countries, Belgium and then the Czech Republic, who had been successful in eliminating African swine fever virus and regaining their ASF-free status. The Czech Republic has since been reinfected, but Belgium, I think, serves as that example that if caught early and and, uh, if action is taken swift enough, uh, you can eliminate the disease. What were some of the questions, Dusty, that you got from the audience about this discussion after you wrapped up your remarks? Yeah, great question. We had everything from, you know, specific questions about Germany, you know, and, and our common thought too was that Germany probably has the, the production system that is most like ours in the United States. And, and that may be true or may have been true. I think that's changing a little bit. And, and there are a number of issues, political and socioeconomic issues in Germany that are changing how animal agriculture is viewed. And that is, that's making it difficult for pig farmers to, to continue to operate there, probably more so than African swine fever viruses. Also had questions about the movement of, of pigs you know, across uh, countries and regions and zones. And that was one thing that, I, that, that we did talk about and that we learned uh, quite a bit about. Across Europe, the European Commission has set a, um, a zoning and regionalization standard that is adopted and, and understood by all members of the European Union. Uh, there are, there's, of course, the free zone where ASF does not exist. And then there's zone three or the red zone. That's where ASF has been identified in domestic pigs. And then there's zone two, the pink zone, where it's been identified only in wild boar, but not in domestic pigs. And then zone one or the blue zone is a buffer zone around either zones two or three. And again, the the, um, designation by the European Commission of each of these zone types also specifies what biosecurity requirements are in place, what are the uh, surveillance requirements. And so uh, while there's no movement of domestic pigs out of a zone three where domestic pigs are or have been found with ASF, there can be continued movement of domestic pigs out of a zone two where wild boar have been identified with ASF, so long as those, those farms are, are continuing to conduct surveillance, you know, as, as defined by the European Commission. Um, and some of that involves submission of um, dead pigs to a diagnostic laboratory every week. They've also got to comply with um, surveillance and, and traceability requirements. And so uh, there is a system in place that's recognized within Europe that allows for continuity of business within the European Union, and even to the point that some countries, such as Poland that we visited, are able to continue to export pork uh, even to the United States. So that was something that we paid close attention to is how how a country with African swine fever in their uh, commercial 
well, in some some in their domestic pigs and then um, also in their wild boar, how that country is able to continue to export. And the reason we're interested, of course, is because the United States exports nearly 30% of its pork that's produced here. And so, um, so those were some key findings there. Awesome. Dusty, anything else important that you touched on during your remarks that you think would be pertinent to share with the PigX listeners? You know, one thing that we observe in talking with a production veterinarian in Romania is that there's such a high level of infection with ASF in the backyard and wild boar populations in Romania that the entire country is considered uh, zone three or red. And so there's no, no trade or movement of pigs out of Romania, but there is still, you know, movement of potentially contaminated products out of Romania. But because there's no hope for reestablishing their exports right now, production systems, which may be similar to that that we'd find in the United States, really aren't concerned with establishing, they, they want to keep their negative sites negative. And so, you know, as I mentioned before, they've, they've in some cases done double fencing and they've, uh, they have strict requirements for their employees as far as uh, entering the production facility and that sort of thing. But what we heard was in one case, a, a large farrowing farm uh, identified uh, infected pigs. And the way that they identify them there is not through antemortem testing like we would think of in uh, getting a blood sample, but but rather through uh, necropsy of all sick and dead pigs. So they, well, of all dead pigs, I should say. And so by doing these necropsies, they can can detect the disease early. And they did that in one in one barn on a large sow farm, and uh, they depopulated that barn the next day, and then in the week they depopulated the barns on either side of that infected barn. But the rest of the farm, uh, they were able to continue to operate and, and and not have further infection. And so they they demonstrated that you know if if your goal is not to reestablish exports but just to keep a productive farm. Uh, you can do that without doing a whole herd depopulation on that farm. It's a it's a slow moving virus. So we were interested to to learn about how they did that and the steps that they took there. But I guess just in in you know in, in final summary, uh, you know some of the remarks that I had there, we we noted that people were the biggest risk for for transporting the virus long distance, um, but that the wild boar were you know wild boar part of the European Union culture. Uh, it reminded me of our deer hunting culture here in the United States. It seemed like it was just, you know, people understood that wild boar are there and there was no desire to really to uh, to, to depopulate the entire herd. They're just going to be there and they're going to be inf- infected with the ASF. Uh, but fences and regionalization do work and they are making some progress in reducing the level in, of infection in wild boar in some of those uh, European countries. And I think uh, most notably, uh, one thing that we that we took away was that no country with African swine fever virus regained all of its export markets, particularly the Asian markets. And when you think about the variety, the variety means that are going to those Asian markets. That's a big loss in in value when you lose those markets, and they're hard to reestablish elsewhere. So again, a, a plug for keeping it out <laughs> and uh, not having to deal with it in the first place. Thanks again to Dusty and Jordan for sharing just a few remarks from their recent Iowa Swine Day presentations. To catch their full presentations from Iowa Swine Day, head to ipic.iastate.edu backslash Iowa Swine Day. Thanks for tuning in this month and be sure to come back next month for a timely episode on managing PERS outbreaks. 
Until next time, I'm your host, Delaney Howell, and this has been the PigX Podcast. PigX is a national podcast hosted by the Pig Livability Project partners at Iowa State University, Kansas State University, and Purdue, and supported by the Iowa Pork Industry Center. For more information on the project, head to www.piglivability.org or to inquire directly with questions regarding the project, email ipic at iastate.edu. Pig X, ideas in the swine industry worth sharing.